This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. Good afternoon, guys. This is Brandon from the Value Hive podcast. This is episode 30. We have reached three decades of episodes, which is just kind of crazy when you go back and think about it. This week, we've got a really cool guest on. Uh, It's Ryan uh, Doherty. I found him on Twitter he was he was one of the early people I followed, and as I started to dig into more of his background, I, I realized that this is a really unique individual, and for some perspective, he was a former professional baseball player, had his fun doing baseball, and he thought, you know what, I'm going to try out professional volleyball, became a professional volleyball player, one of the best, actually, while he was... Uh, while he was at his at his at his peak, and he you know beat guys like Phil Dahlhauser, which if anyone knows volleyball, that's a pretty amazing accomplishment. And after you know he decided to climb the ranks of volleyball, he thought you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna take on finance, take on investing, and and that's when I really found him. And we're just gonna dive into the weeds about his background, the comparisons between athletics and investing. There's so much to talk about in terms of competition and results and outcomes, and I'm just really excited to get into the weeds. So Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. I know it's early this morning. Yeah, I appreciate it, Brandon. That's quite an introduction. So, first off, for those that don't know you or like have no idea about you, who are you? Who is Ryan Doherty? And just kind of give us your original personal background and your transition from uh, sports to finance. Right. So, for the two or three of your listeners who don't follow professional beach volleyball uh, routinely, I'll give them the 30-second <laughs> bio. Uh, I am a uh, former baseball player, played uh, at Notre Dame. Uh, signed with the Arizona Diamondbacks after my junior year. Played about three seasons in the minors before I got released. Um, really tough time, you know, going from being a baseball player to an ex-baseball player in a day. So I ended up kind of uh, running away and going and living on my buddy's couch in South Carolina. Found the sport of beach volleyball. Absolutely loved it. Um, you know, went back to finish my degree at Notre Dame, was kind of doing some odd jobs back home in New Jersey, and then realized that, you know, I'm never going to be able to scratch this volleyball itch unless I move out to California. So packed up my Jeep, uh, drove out to California without a job or a place to live lined up at the at the time. Um, just found, uh, you know, cheap little apartments, uh, you know, a couple, a couple odd jobs in the afternoon, and that way I could play beach volleyball every morning. Um, give it about three years of consistently playing beach volleyball and getting beat by everybody. All of a sudden, I started uh, winning some games, got to uh, where I could get a pretty high-level partner in the beach volleyball world, um, and then was able to, in my first professional tournament, take down the defending gold medalists um, in their only domestic event that year. And for about the past nine years or so, I've made my living uh, traveling all over the world, representing Team USA and competing in high-level beach volleyball tournaments. One thing I always ask people that have a real passion for what they do is walk us walk us through just your feelings and the ability for you to play a sport and get paid to play a sport. Like how 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 cool really is that? Uh, it's fantastic, and uh, that was kind of the, one of the reasons that I was so distraught when I was out of baseball is because. 
I mean, lightning's never going to strike twice. You're never going to get lucky enough to have someone pay you to do something that you like to do physically. I mean, my life as a minor league baseball player was, you know, you wake up at noon, you mess around on the guitar for two hours, you go to the ballpark, hang out with your buddies, work out. Uh, you have a baseball game that starts at seven. You're in the bullpen flirting with girls in the stands. And, you know, by the time the game ends at 1030 or 11, you head home, you, you go to a bar, you do whatever you want to do. And then you repeat the whole thing the next day and you're getting paid to do it. It's, it's almost surreal how much fun it is while, while pursuing something that's, you know, really meaningful and important to you, which is trying to be a major league baseball player, one of the highest achievements you can make in the sport. So, um, you know, it's remarkably fun. It's challenging, but it's the best kind of challenge. So, um, you know, I, I've definitely lived a charmed life. Yeah, we're going to we're, we're, we're gonna dive into that whole um, challenging and just passion as, as it translates into investing a, a little bit later. But one thing that people will obviously not know because this is an audio format and it's not video is how tall you are and how freakishly tall you are. <laughs> I think I think I don't I don't know if you gave yourself the nickname of the Avatar, but I know that you wrote the book about basically, you know, the Avatar's guide to volleyball or something along those lines. But for those that don't know you, how tall are you and how often do people mention it when they first meet you? Right. So, uh, I am 7 feet tall. Um, if I had a nickel for every time uh, somebody brought up my height when first meeting me, I would be a, a very wealthy man. This would probably be a little bit of a different podcast. Um, uh, yeah, so I did not come up with the nickname Avatar. That was just one more tall crack when I showed up in the beaches in uh, Southern California. I, I didn't know anybody. So I would go and run around on the court and just kind of hang out where all the volleyball players were. But, you know, nobody knew who I was. So. Uh, somebody kind of made the quip like, hey, who brought the avatar down here? Because, you know, some seven-foot guy's running around on the court by himself, uh, and it stuck. So I've been avatar ever since, and uh, since wrote my, my famous ebook, uh, Avatar's Guide to Beach Volleyball. And with that height came, at one point, the accolade of tallest baseball player to ever play in the minors. Is that is that also correct? I believe I had it for about three months, yes. So I'm seven feet tall, um, and uh, my first season in minors, uh, I, I think I set the record. And then uh, a guy from Lithuania, I believe, was seven one and signed. So he kicked me out of the Hall of Fame, and I'm, I've been angry <laughs> at him ever since. Uh, you know, he actually had a pretty solid career, you know, did a little bit better in the minors than I did, so I can't hold it against him. One of the things... I believe, I, I believe I'm still one of the tallest beach volleyball players to ever win a professional event that one's uh, the other, yeah so um in in the avp there there is a uh or i'm sorry in the united states there's a beach volleyball hall of fame and one famous guy that's in it that's my height uh is will chamberlain he was uh, a big deal in the volleyball circle back in the day he used to love the sport um so I, i'm in good company as seven footers that uh in the sport yeah, I didn't know that about about Wilt. Um, speaking speaking of other speaking of other legends, when you when you signed with the Diamondbacks, one of the one of the most prolific and famous pitchers of all time in the majors, Randy Johnson was 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 on the major league roster, and you had a chance to meet him. And I know that he was kind of a big, you know, I, I don't I don't want to say hero, but role model for you as a baseball player growing up, because Randy Johnson's also a monster. I mean, he was called the big unit. So what was it, what was it like to get a chance to meet one of your heroes growing up playing the game? Yeah. Uh, hero works. He, he absolutely was a hero of mine. So, you know, when I first fell in love with baseball, I was very young, you know, probably 
seven, eight years old when I really just got the itch and loved the sport. He was the big, tall guy who was dominating the sport, you know, and it kind of showed that I was always, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else in my grade and class. So as the tall guy, hey, this is a sport that you can play. You don't have to just play basketball. Um, so, you know, looked up to him my entire uh, life, you know, met him when I was probably about – 23 years old in the Dimeback uh, organization. And, you know, they always kind of tell you, don't meet your heroes. Uh, and that's nonsense. He was, he was amazing. Uh, couldn't have been a nicer guy. Couldn't have been more helpful. Uh, I got to do a kind of a cool little uh, tall guy photo shoot with him where, you know, we took some pictures and, you know, he gave me some advice. And then he actually had a rehab start. You know, a lot of times major leaguers, if they're working back from an injury, will just go to a minor league team and get their work in there. So, you know, uh, you know, if you're a hitter, you come up and you do your first, you're at bat, you're, you lead off every inning for three or four innings because the game in the minor leagues, you know, they matter, but they don't really matter compared to the major league affiliates. Um, so Randy Johnson came out, pitched for five innings for the team I was playing on in Visalia, California. Uh, and then when he left, he, you know, took the entire team out to, you know, this nice dinner at Outback and, you know, I made sure that I had a bunch of Diamondback swag that was going to fit me. So uh, just a remarkably cool guy and couldn't be prouder of him for, you know, that Hall of Fame career that he had. Yeah, I saw a video. I don't know if you watch John Boy uh, Media. He does like a bunch of baseball breakdowns and he did a breakdown of one of Randy Johnson's. I don't know if it was a complete game, no hitter or no, I'm sorry, a perfect game, but it was, but it, but it was a no hitter. And basically, after he did the no hitter, he acted like nothing ever happened. Just the stoic snarl on his face, and you always get the impression that he's just this like rough and tough guy. But it sounds like under the hood, he was, you know, he definitely had a had a softer and more more palatable side. Yeah, I mean, he uh, he threw that perfect game with the Diamondbacks. You know, his last pitch was 90 miles an hour through the letters. Just remarkable. Um, and then, you know, quick celebration, and he's right back to being the same guy that he was. Uh, he was, you know, a uh, pretty genuine and uh, lighthearted guy when talking with us, all the players in the minor leagues. I don't think that he had the best relationship with media. So I think once somebody put a camera on him, he kind of clammed up and did not really enjoy, uh, you know, kind of being himself in that, in that element, which, you know, you can't fault him. You know, not everybody can be uh, charming as well as dominant. I want to dive deeper into the period in between when you were released from the Diamondbacks and you were almost in this, uh, we'll call it a limbo phase, where in an, I, I read an article where you said you became hollow and you even, you even alluded to it in the beginning, you ran away from home. And I just want to dive into that a little bit deeper because I know a lot of people even if it's not athletics, they struggle with the idea of being defined by something, whether it's my last trade or my last big investment or the last company I used to run. And then once that's over, there's this emptiness and, 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 and there's this feeling of hollowness. Talk to us about what that was like. And maybe, maybe, you know, if you can, some of those, some of those dark days and what you did to come out of that. Yeah, so that was a very rough time for me. Uh, obviously, you know, I was a baseball player one day and then not a baseball player the next. And um, I think you hit the nail on the head with, you know, my identity was wrapped up in being a baseball player. That's who I was. I took pride in that. So now what exactly can I take pride in? You know, what can I work towards that I find fulfilling? You know, I kept kind of thinking about what the next thing in life would be. And it was never with optimism. It was never going to be, oh, you know, I could do 
this many different great things that I would truly enjoy. It was always, you know, I had uh, the opportunity to play a sport for a living, and now I don't, so um, things won't get better. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, I think my biggest takeaway was that I was wrong. I was dead wrong. I uh, was able to find something new that I was passionate about. It, it took a while, and it took, you know, uh, some some dark days and some, uh, real frustration on my part, but then all of a sudden uh, you found something that you were excited about and that you would, you know, uh, like to put more time into um, and that you could also take pride in. You know, I, I was a terrible beach volleyball player when I started. Me and my buddy that I lived with, we would routinely get beat by high school girls. Like I was a former professional athlete who's seven feet tall. He, you know, played uh, Division One college sports, hit 25 home runs, uh, and we were getting crushed by 15-year-old little girls uh, while, while we were playing. But it's, you know, I, I didn't take pride in being great. I took pride in enjoying it and took pride in trying to get better at it. So, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a great parallel with investing. Obviously, uh, everybody who you know, has a past, they try to go, well, this relates to this really well. You know, this communications degree is a great uh, addition to your hedge funds. You know, um, I, I don't think it's a perfect correlation in terms of, you know, me losing the ability to play sports, but you can definitely see how some people might get wrapped up in the fact that, you know, maybe you blew up your account, maybe, you, you know, tried to do a certain investment and failed and, and you kind of came up short. And um, if you define yourself through that, then yes, it's going to be a really frustrating thing, and you're not going to, you know, be thinking clear-headedly through the next uh, phases of your career. But um, I was lucky enough to kind of weasel my way out of those dark days, and uh, good things have happened since. It's funny you mentioned you said take pride in the process and take pride in you know your ability to strive and to get to where you want to go, not necessarily each individual outcome. And I just think that's so important to reiterate because it goes back to this idea of you're not really venturing to try to get the outcome per se as perfecting the process to get there. And that's really the only way you would have became a good volleyball player. Because if you focused on the outcome, losing to 15 year old girls, then you would, you would have stopped, but you, you, but you took pride in the passion of the game that you had. And I just think that's important for people to realize because there is a lot of corollaries there between, between what you went through and investing. I want to, I want to dive just a little bit more and see if there's any mentors in your life during that period that helped you come out of that slump and, and, and if there was any, you know, books or resources that you read just to kind of get yourself out of that. You know, I didn't, uh, not during that time. I, I really kind of, uh, stuck to myself. So I, I've met some really great people who have helped me out in uh, a lot of different ways, uh, kind of since then, uh, you know, in the beach volleyball world, um, it's a, it's a small world and it's very tight knit. Um, so people are very willing to help and lend a hand. But at the time, I was I, I was kind of solitary, and, and that was by design. I was trying to make sure that I wasn't um, kind of infecting anyone else with my negativity is uh, maybe a way to put it. Um, so during that time, the, you know, I, I would just uh, might work my odd jobs. I think I worked at a T-shirt shop. I worked as a caddy at a golf course, just kind of, uh, you know, filling the hours and, you know, spend my nights reading Investopedia and learning about all those terms and, uh, you know, the very basics of finance talk and start to get interested in how that works. Um, but, yeah, no real uh, mentor or somebody who kind of led me through to the other side. Do you have a type of personality where it's a little bit OCD where once you get hooked on something, you just can't stop thinking about it and you just have to keep going and almost perfect it just for the sake of the OCD 
because it sounds i mean a lot of a lot of athletes that are at the high level seem to have this obsessive compulsive to get better to become the best that they can in it and it and it seems like you know from going from pro baseball you go to volleyball and you find this thing and it immediately scratches your itch and then is there any sort of ocd tendency there where it's like i just can't stop thinking about it uh probably a little bit you know i probably a slightly obsessive personality and uh i think that you kind of nailed it before when you were talking about um the process in terms of uh investing so um i am very much into the process of what i do because you know like you said you really don't control the outcome that much in sports you know similar to investing you can really dive deep into the process and make sure that you do everything right and you know the trade just doesn't go your way or in my case you know the the other team just happened to play better you know you didn't get a call you did some things went went wrong and all of a sudden you lost even though you've done everything right leading up to it um so for me it was always about you know if I could really love the process and, and for me, the process of getting better and learning and improving is, uh, is very addictive. And, and I think that might be uh, a good way to put it is a little OCD in terms of, I want to work through all these little nuances that enable me to potentially get better, you know, and, uh, for, for sports, you know, they always make that saying, uh, you, you try to get 1% better every day. Um, but they don't tell you that, there's no guarantee you will, you know, you can work as hard as you want. You can do everything the right way and you still might come up short. You still might at the end of that practice day, uh, get worse. You know, that's, that's how improvement works. Sometimes it's, uh, negative and sometimes it's huge leaps in a, in, in a week or a month. So, uh, you just have to kind of really enjoy and be okay with that process rather than focusing on what the outcome is going to be. Cause if you do that, then, uh, yes, you're going to set yourself up for way more frustration than, than most people can handle. So you're losing to 15-year-old girls, and you're starting to get a little bit better. You're starting to beat them, and now you're moving on to a little bit more advanced competition. You're beating those guys. At what point do you think to yourself, and maybe you even say it, hey, I think I can go pro, and then, hey, I think I can be really good. What was that, what was that process? So I, uh, you know, lived in South Carolina with my buddy. We would, you know, lose to pretty much everybody. Uh, went back to finish my senior year at Notre Dame. I, you know, uh, after putting in three years there, I didn't feel right about not graduating from college uh, after everything that Notre Dame had done for me. So uh, after finishing my degree, I was then just living at home in New Jersey. They have, you know, some volleyball tournaments there. They're called Great American Volleyball. They run them there. Uh, they have a open event, which is open is our level for professional professional um, but at a very very low level you know you make a hundred bucks if you win uh, the open event in one of these things um, I was pretty routinely losing I maybe won one or two of those could make the playoffs every once in a while but at no point was I thinking that I could be a professional beach volleyball player like uh, it's the guys on the AVP and the guys that compete on the FIVB were light years better than I was at that time um, the thing that I was thinking about was that I, every day that I woke up and was, was going to play beach volleyball, I was waking up happy. So it wasn't so much, wow, I think I could be really good at this. It was, wow, every time I wake up to play, I'm excited to play. I'm excited to tackle the day. Um, so, you know, logically, my next move was, all right, well, you have to make it so that instead of playing two or three times a week in New Jersey, you've got to move to South, uh, Southern California where – 
now you can play every day. That's what you know, people in Southern California do. They play volleyball every morning. So, uh, you know, if I wanted, uh, you know, kind of the hack the quality of life issue and just be happy every day, well, you have to move to where you can play volleyball because that's what's making you happy. And I and I love this part. I'm going to pick it up and just and just follow along in it. In that in that same article that I was uh, referring to earlier, you said, and I quote. I ended up starting my trip. This is this is the trip to Southern California. I ended up starting my trip without the time to work out all the details, like finding a place to live or getting a job lined up. So clearly, finding a place to live or getting a job lined up are two minor details. <laughs> One, small, small little, uh, small yeah, little details as you go. Yeah, as long as you get meals and water, I guess it doesn't really matter what happens. <laughs> but talk to us about that and taking the jump. Uh, because I think I think it's important for people to listen where where you know where wherever you are in life, whether it's let's say it's not athletics, but let's say you're trying to start a fund or you're trying to uh, make a big investment. And really, every every investment you make, it's that jump. Because in public markets, there's no perfect information. You're always not going to know something. And you made this big life decision not knowing a lot of very you know important parts. So talk to us about the decision to go without knowing all the information. How you know, how that shaped how you ended up today. Right. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of people worry about, the, you know, I will go when the stars align, when this happens, when this happens. Um, and I was worried about that for myself, you know, when I, hey, I want to move to Southern California. All right, well, when are you going to do it? And uh, I didn't want to kind of make it so that it was always this far off goal in the distance. Um, so I set rules for myself. And uh, once I set a rule, then it's a rule. Um, so mine was, all right, if you have $5,000 in your savings account, if at any point you look in your savings account and it says uh, it's got a balance of $5,000, um, two weeks later you start your drive. So that was the rule I made for myself. At this time I had probably 1000 bucks. Um, and that, in my mind, gave me plenty of time to kind of research, do, you know, what beach do I want to move to in California? Uh, where could I find work? You know, maybe uh, scour Craigslist to find a place to live. Um, however, uh, there was some lucky trips to Atlantic City, and all of a sudden my bank account was had the $5,000 in it much sooner than expected. So uh, I figured I would have a couple months to do some research, and I ended up having about two and a half weeks, um, which is, you know, it's great, you know. Uh, uh, it just means that I kind of had to follow that that rule, which means that you know you go early and and you go without everything lined up. But uh, I, I've always been more of someone who takes pride in being able to adapt rather than uh, plan. You know, I, I'm a better adapter than I am a planner. So um, I knew that once I kind of got out here, I'd be able to find my way and make some things happen. And uh, I only had to spend uh, the first night in the Jeep. Uh, I was able to find a place to live pretty quickly after that. And, uh, you know, once once you found all those kind of minor details is in uh, a, a place to live and uh, a way to sustain yourself, then everything flowed pretty quickly. I was about to say, because $5,000 in L.A. gets you maybe one month in a 200-square-foot apartment. You know, everybody, everybody kind of makes those jokes. You can be cheap out here. We we have roommates. Like it's, it's fine. You don't have to live uh, the life of luxury. I mean, I, uh, if I, I don't think I'm even allowed to look at the houses on the Strand in Manhattan Beach, uh, if I don't have at least a hundred thousand dollars in my bank account. But, um, you know, for for the rest of us, there's plenty of uh, very poor people that live in Southern California. We just kind of kind of find a make a way, um, find a way to make it work. So you move out there. You've got. 
you know, no, no place to live. You don't really have a job lined up. Talk to us about that transition from you're starting to get a job and now you're starting to play a little bit more volleyball. You realize that you can go pro as long as you dedicate yourself and maybe, maybe put more time in. What was that? Maybe, maybe, maybe there wasn't, but if there was, what was that one game or one match or one opponent that you beat that you thought, all right, I can, you know, I'm, I have now arrived. Um, so very early on, I did not think that. So I, I moved out, uh, I think it was probably 2010, um, was when I landed in, uh, Southern California and, um, right that same year, the AVP, which is our domestic tour, uh, went bankrupt. So all of a sudden the pro tour in the United States that I was going to work towards trying to get on, uh, was no longer running. So they, they kind of folded, um, so for me, you know, uh, it didn't really matter that much. I was not out there as a professional beach volleyball player. I was out there as somebody who loved playing beach volleyball. So my day didn't change. Everybody who else who, you know, was making a living off of this and, you know, was using it to, at a minimum, subsidize their income, they now had to do other things. They now had to find different jobs where I can just keep working at my pizza place, keep doing pitching lessons on the side, and, uh, you know, my day didn't change that much. So I was... Uh, probably somebody who benefited the most from the AVP going under. Um, but while that, all, while that all happened and a lot of people filtered out of the sport and I just continued to practice and get better, um, I did not think that I would get to the point where I was you know, regularly competing with professionals until that first professional tournament. So you know, I picked up a really solid partner and a guy named Casey Patterson who at the time was one of the premier players in the United States, and, and he still is. Um, uh, really fun guy, brash, mohawk, yells and screams during matches. Uh, you know, quite quite the character. A little bit different than myself, um, but you know, he was a great partner. And then our first tournament, uh, we beat Phil Dahlhauser and Todd Rogers, who won the Olympic gold in 2008. Um, we beat them in the finals. And all of a sudden, at that point, I thought, you know what? I, I just beat some of the best in the world. Maybe this could be something where I I do this full time. I can I can make a living off of playing this game. Yeah, beating gold medalists is a pretty easy way to validate yourself in 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 <laughs> in whatever you do. Um, what was what what was it like going through that? And then when you beat Phil Dahlhauser, obviously that's kind of the pinnacle of 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 that sport at that time. The number one, the gold medalist. Talk to us about setbacks after that, because as you mentioned earlier, there's not this linear success uh, graph. Success goes up, it goes down, you take two steps back, you take three steps forward. Did you have any serious setbacks after that high of beating Phil Dahlhauser that you know made you question kind of your love for the game? Because I know a lot of athletes go through that where they almost get burnt out in a sense, where they play so much and they love the game, but then something happens, maybe it's a big loss, and then they lose lose the love of the game. Did that ever happen to you? Uh, yeah, so that's actually pretty interesting. So my first year, that year with Casey Patterson, um, we did really pretty well. Uh, we won, I think, three domestic tournaments. They were, you know, not AVP tournaments. They were kind of smaller offshoot uh, events, but they still, you know, had great competition. Um, and we, we did really well. You know, I made more money than I ever thought I would make in that year. Uh, the following year, uh, Phil Dahlhauser and Todd Rogers, who had been partners for about eight years at that point, um, they split and Todd needed a guy um, to play with. So he played with, uh, asked me to play with him. 
huge honor. Todd Rogers is uh, known as the professor in our sport. He's one of the all-time greats. Uh, and he's also uh, nicknamed the professor because he is as cere- cerebral as they come and, and really understands the game at a high level. Uh, I, at this time, did not. Uh, and, you know, I, if I'm being honest, I still don't understand the game the way that Todd does. He he just pictures it. Uh, you know, he's got like a Pentium chip in his head. He processes things so quickly, and I, I've never been that guy. Um, so during that time, playing with Todd, I was terrible. You know, we were going out on the world tour up against all of the best teams on the planet um, who are paid a lot of money to find your weaknesses and to, um, you know, really leverage those skills that you're lacking. And basically every skill that I was, you know, substandard in, they, they picked on it and destroyed it and, and tore me apart. So I spent an entire year traveling all over the world not making much money, playing with Todd, who uh, is a fantastic guy and, and uh, still somebody that I look up to as a friend, but is very difficult to play with because he can make you feel about two inches tall when he kind of glares at you, if you after you do something stupid. So, um, yeah, that my, my kind of sophomore slump was a really frustrating time, and that was um, – you know, when I kind of had to really question, you know, what do I want to do with the sport? How do I want to approach it? Do I want to just look at it for sheer fun and enjoyment? At which point, you know, I would have probably stopped playing with Todd altogether and gone back just playing uh, domestically. Or do I want to try to make this and see how good of a volleyball player I can be? You know, do I want to see if I can push through to the other side of all of these challenges and, you know, come out better for it. So that was kind of the route that I took is that, you know, like it's not going to be as fun as it was when you're just playing with your buddies uh, down at the beach with no pressure. But the flip side is now you really get to see how good you can be. So if you dedicate yourself fully to it, that's kind of that sophomore slump was the reason to attack from that angle, which was, uh, you know, you're either going to have to go one way or the other. You might as well go through the hard way and see if something good happens. What were some of the things that Todd would do, whether it was you know, verbal, nonverbal, throughout the match, that made you feel two inches tall? That actually interests me because it seems like on a psychological level, there's there was there was maybe a barrier where you thought when you stepped on to that court or that you know the sand, I guess, that you weren't. I don't know if worthy is the right answer. I might be putting words into your mouth, but it's almost as if you looked at him and it's like, this is Todd Rogers and I'm playing with him. Like, there's no way I'm capable of playing at his level. Like, did that ever cross your mind or was it, was it something else? Oh yeah. I mean, so Todd and Phil Dahlhauser were literally one of the best teams in the world. And then the next year he goes and plays with me and we're routinely taking 25th and 17th in tournaments. Like I don't think Todd has ever taken a 17th in the past eight years playing with Phil. So, uh, I mean, it's not difficult to see where the uh, weak link is in that chain. You know, um, Todd, uh, is a fantastically smart guy, but in terms of body language on the court, like, you know, big fan of the shoulder slump, the kind of the sigh, the you know, head, head tilt to the side, you know, I would ask him a question and he would just go, well, that depends. And, you know, in the middle of a heated <laughs> match, you don't really want to hear, well, that depends, uh, especially as like a young guy, you know? So, I mean, we'll just kind of like really quickly, I remember, you know, I'm I'm supposed to be blocking uh, line, and he's supposed to be digging in the angle. I block line, all of a sudden the guy shoots angle, and, you know, Todd's right behind me in the line. And I just go to him, I'm like, hey, I thought you were supposed to be here. 
And he says, well, if you saw the angle of the guy's approach plus where the set was, you knew that he wasn't going to be able to do this shot. So he's now only going to be able to hit this and this, which means if I scoot to here and you scoot to here, then we should be fine. And I go, oh, okay, great. So it's you know it's, right now it's uh, thirteen thirteen in the third. I, I'm glad we just discussed that very nuanced <laughs> opinion of yours. So you know, and again, like he pictured the game that way. That was uh, one of the things that made him as great as he was. Is he was able to do that. And when he was playing with Phil, who also could kind of picture that game at a high level and read it in 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 uh, that quickly, uh, they were absolutely dominant. I, you know, was kind of more playing checkers when everyone else was playing chess and just trying to leverage my strengths, uh, which, you know, obviously sometimes made me look like a bit of an idiot. And it almost it almost seems like that that character trait, the ability to see things that others don't and to do all these calculations in your head. I I just I just think back to all the best CEOs and innovators such as Steve Jobs. I don't know if you've seen the Steve Jobs movie with Michael Fassbender, but I thought it did an excellent job at seeing like this this man's brain works so differently and it works so much faster than everyone around him that it's almost no wonder that he gets frustrated when when employees or partners don't see what he sees because it's almost as if he's saying in his brain how could you not see this because he's painted this picture already and it goes back to kind of what Todd was doing you know he's doing all these weird geometric calculations and probabilities and basically like random game theory mid-match and he's just looking to you and say, well, obviously, Ryan, can't you see this massive complexion that is simple in my head? Right. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, he was definitely a guy, and this is as genuine as it comes, is uh, he did see it that way. And it very much was, like you said, where um, he really didn't understand how I didn't see the things that he saw. Like, it was so obvious to him that it didn't make any sense uh, uh, that I would stick with my call, what I said I was going to do while everything was unfolding. Um, I think the worry I have with that is, you know, too many uh, people become jerks and then think that they're Steve Jobs when they don't necessarily picture things the way right. uh, everyone else doesn't picture things the way and they're, and they're you know, uh, a bad boss or a bad teammate or whatever. You know, they kind of use that. Well, I probably just see things uh, better and more clearly than everyone else. And in reality, they're they're actually just kind of they're being jerks. Yeah, it's a very it's, it's a very fine line between like hubris and charlatan versus true visionary, I guess. And and you just don't understand how other people don't see it. There's definitely a fine line there. Right. Now, you've been to 20 countries, and kind of one of the one of one of the cool parts about your career is getting paid to travel around the world and play volleyball, play beach volleyball, nonetheless, you know, getting outside and being in the sun and playing on all these really cool places. How, how, how did global travel affect your view of the world in the sense of, you know, you come from New Jersey and then you go to South Carolina, then you go out to LA and now you're traveling to 20 countries. Did you have a favorite country? And then what were some of the things that you learned while traveling the world about other cultures and other people? Right. So, uh, yeah, before beach volleyball, I'd never left the country. Uh, I'm now probably over, I don't know, 22, 23 and on five continents. So, uh, yeah, it's been a, a really eye-opening experience. Um, you know, I am not somebody who tries to immerse myself in the culture of different places. That's just not who I am. I'm not uh, super social. So that aspect of the travel, uh, other people tended to enjoy much more. Um, me, I loved seeing new things and just kind of uh, – you know, 
experiencing something that you can't experience anywhere else. So, you know, being in uh, the Swiss Alps or, you know, eating food in, in Rome and, you know, walking by the Trevi Fountain with, you know, some delicious gelato, you can't really experience that anywhere else. Um, in terms of investing, uh, I kind of, you know, and this is, again, a very small sample size. It's just my ability to, you know, I've been to China probably 10, 15 times at this point. Um, and during the times that I would go, you know, this China is the engine for growth. It's it's where all the, you know, best companies are going because that's where the market share is going to be. And those all the best investments are going to be coming out of China. And I just, you know, I, I didn't see it. I, I saw a whole lot of uh, you know, huge buildings that didn't have any people in them. I saw uh, a lot of people that weren't the typical consumer. And, you know, you, you kind of model their growth. They might be able to go from, you know, the way they live now to now being a little bit more consumer-friendly and uh, uh, kind of American-ish in, in terms of how they how they buy products and things like that. But uh, for the most part, it just it seemed to me like uh it was more of a fairy tale than anything else. So all the uh, the huge growth and the uh, engine for you know world growth that China was going to be. So uh, I was very skeptical of China very early on. Um, uh, who knows, you know, how things play out from here. I could still uh, imagine kind of both scenarios uh, going one way or the other. But uh, yeah, so I, I've never been uh, a firm believer that China is going to be um, a huge investment opportunity going forward. What what was your favorite country that you visited? Uh, Switzerland's pretty remarkable. Uh, super clean, super uh, you know beautiful. Uh, you take a train from uh, the Zurich airport to uh, this little uh, Swiss chalet in Stad, Switzerland. Um, that is usually a you know, for, for skiing, and all of a sudden one week of the year in the summer it turns into uh, a beach volleyball heaven. Um, it's really a pretty unique place, and uh, if it's somewhere that you have the opportunity to go and visit, um, I would recommend anyone do it just because you're not going to be able to see things like that or kind of experience things like that anywhere else. Before we dive into stocks and finance and your transition into that, a question that I forgot to ask you was how much of the mental or how much how much of volleyball is 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 mental where it's you know sometimes it's just 2v2 and it's just you two versus two other people and i'm going to i'm going to frame that in the context of the only sport that i've played really at a high competitive level is 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 tennis and people don't seem to understand how mental tennis is in terms of you know understanding your opponent and knowing when they're ready to crack and 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 doing all of that so from a novice perspective as someone who's just watched volleyball i play it but it's super super casual how much of the game at the professional level is mental and then you know how much how much strength does it take to maintain that mental stability during high high profile matches See, it's really interesting you brought that up because uh, when I was a baseball player, I was a pitcher, which means that everything that I would do would be proactive. I didn't have to start or do anything until I was ready. So, uh, you know, as hitters in baseball, you have to be reactive. But pitchers, you completely control the action. Um, beach volleyball is the exact opposite. You almost always are in a state of reacting because, you know, you have to react to where that serve is. You have to react to where the set is. You change what you do based on what the other team is doing. So very early on, it was very nerve-wracking for me. I would get much more nervous than I did playing baseball. Um, 
you know, thankfully, you know, in a minor league baseball season, there's about 140 games plus playoffs. So you have a lot of experience with competition. You just, you do it over and over again. And that also, you know, that sheer amount of repetition kind of beats the idea out of you that you're going to try to do something different when the, when the going gets tough. You know, like there's, uh, I, I always kind of laugh at people who think like, oh, you know, like in, in a clutch situation, that's when that person's going to rise. Well, in a clutch situation, really good athletes fall back on their training better than others so that they're able to just do what they've been trained to do and think clearly and, and not panic and stress and push, push because as soon as you do that, you're going to struggle. Um, so, yeah, that's been – it was much more uh, nerve-wracking when I first started playing beach volleyball. Um, I kind of have to take the, you know, distancing myself from the outcome and just realize that, all right, you know, I'm in the tenses, I'm in the finals, I'm up against somebody who's really good, this is going to be on national TV. Uh, how do I approach this? Well, I approach it by I've done everything I can to lead up to my, uh, this point. Um, I need to be focused and in the present and not worried about anything else. And whatever happens afterwards, I'll be able to deal with it. I love it. I love it. I, I think every everybody should just re-listen to that segment over and over again because the amount of just general life application that that little snippet that you just said has is 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 incredible i mean whether whether it's you know starting a business it's investing you know it's not focusing on the trade that you just had that was wrong it's focusing on the process the investment this this case staying in the moment um i you know that's something that i'm going to go back and listen to uh, a few times a few times to let that really sink in let's let's switch now to your passion and your and your discovery of finance and investing because at some point along the way you mentioned that you were staying up at night looking at investopedia learning about finance where did where did that initial interest come from was it was it from a family member that was a was a trader or an investor how did how did how did that spring up uh no yeah so no uh no family members in the industry uh no money to speak of you know we we grew up pretty poor um, so it was mainly just I've always been, you know, fascinated with investing and how it works and, and the idea that, you know, uh, kind of through just understanding the markets, you can create money, you can create value by allocating capital in the, in the proper way. So, um, you know, my kind of financial knowledge has been a little bit different than most, I would guess. Uh, you know, I didn't take any courses in college, you know, aside from, you know, a sporadic business course. I was a, a philosophy major, uh, planning on being a professional philosopher, and unfortunately that fell through. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, while I was living in South Carolina, I lived, uh, you know, spent a lot of time just learning the absolute basics, the, you know, what the terms meant. Uh, Investopedia was great for that. Um, and beyond that, uh, probably the past couple of years, I've graduated to, all right, you know, read some books, you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you read The Millionaire Next Door. Uh, and beyond that, you start graduating to maybe some different types of books that, like, let you think about it a little deeper. You know, I really enjoy Howard Marks, um, The Most Important Thing, or, you know, any of, you know, Warren Buffett's annual letters. Uh, I, I think those are super valuable, and I've enjoyed reading those. Uh, and then beyond that, you know, I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall as somebody who right now I'm 36 years old and 
for my sport, beach volleyball, that's not that old. There's plenty of people who are in their 40s and still competing and doing great things. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a bigger guy. I've got some nagging injuries, which uh, I, would, I would assume that I'm probably not going to be uh, competing on the sand when I'm 40, uh, which means that, you know, what do I want to do after – this beach volleyball career is over. So uh, I did an online MBA and that left a little something to be desired. It was not a very rigorous program and I didn't feel like I learned that much. Um, and then uh, I took the CFA exam, uh, took level one, uh, solely because I heard that that was the hardest. I heard that that was the one that, you know, it's broadest, it has the most information on it, and that's the one that is really going to challenge you. Um, so, you know, being a person that likes challenge and likes the process of trying to learn different things, uh, I took the exam, uh, passed level one, which means now you have no choice but to take level two. So I passed level two the, in about uh, 18 months from then, and I will sit for level three uh, this December. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, it's been super exciting learning about the industry. I'm uh, trying to find my way into uh, a role, some entry-level finance job somewhere. Um, that's one of the difficulties for me at the moment is just that I don't have a you know narrow space into, into where I want to go. I, I find most of the industry fascinating. So it would be silly for me just to apply for jobs that are fixed income or, you know, just for jobs that are, you know, working with variant swaps or things like that. But, you know, it's also difficult to find those jobs if you don't have the specialty, if you don't dedicate yourself to one thing. So uh, I'm, I'm probably a little bit too much of a generalist to find my way in, but hopefully somebody will take a shot at me and then uh, I can grow from there. So, Ryan, what's your ideal job? Let's say you could get to choose after volleyball in a in a in a in a finance role your dream job what would that look like um it would probably be just entry level hedge funds or high uh, investment bank uh, i i really want to understand how the people at the very top of the food chain make decisions um so right now you know you can kind of read as much as you want on twitter or you know read a bunch of books on the subject but until you really get how the biggest players you know how they decide to allocate capital what they're looking at in terms of you know making moves in one direction or the other it's always you're always going to be coming from a place of really incomplete information and and I get that that's uh, you know a necessary evil in investment you're always going to be making decisions without all of the info but um just having an insight into, all right, this is what you know the Norway pension fund is is thinking when they try to make decisions in these types of investments, and these are how investment banks are structuring products for them, and and this is why they try to do it that way. Uh, I think that would be an incredibly valuable piece of information in terms of me just for the rest of my life, you know, making investments for myself, making investments for a client if I do work on the client side. So, I think uh, you know I would love to do that. You know, um, I, I think it's like the, I, I don't know exactly what they call it, but the first couple of years of investment banking where they just grind you to death. But it's you know you learn a ton in that short period of time. Uh, unfortunately, you know I'm, you know I have a pretty good life out here in California and a girlfriend who would not enjoy moving to New York. So <laughs> I don't know if uh, living you know doing and working those 100-hour weeks in New York City is going to happen, but. Uh, I think that would be the probably the most beneficial for me at this point. How would you define your investment style? I know you mentioned reading Warren Buffett's letters, Howard Marks is an influence. When you look at your personal portfolio, if you you know if you manage a personal portfolio, how would you describe that investment style? And then how has that changed for you since 
learning more, you know, since passing the CFA or even deciding to start the CFA, you know, how, how is that personality and that, and that philosophy changed? Right. So I would recommend that any of your listeners, they, you know, if they want to follow me on Twitter, um, basically the best investment style would be to take whatever I say and then do the exact opposite. And you should make an absolute killing over the next few years. <laughs> Sounds like Scott Galloway. Uh, you know, if, if my history is anything to be uh, replicated, I am the best contraindicator in the game. So congratulations <laughs> on your newfound wealth. Uh, so um, in terms of my investment philosophy, it really isn't uh, too solidified right now. Like my uh, active philosophy, what I try to you know think about is that I don't have a set you know way to look at the world. And um, you know you kind of recognize the more you, time you spend following the markets that you know every different style can make money. Everybody has their way. Um, which means that no one style is necessary to be successful in the industry. You just have to find your niche and be able to do that well. Um, I think early on, uh, I kind of was of, of the uh, mindset that, you know, the market just is going to make sense. Uh, so, you know, I've done my CFA studying. I learned that when, you know, a company is not making money, the stock price should go down, yada, yada. Uh, so I made a rather large bet against Tesla as a, you know, perpetually unprofitable company. And, you know, uh, I'm sure anyone who's checked the stock price of Tesla lately knows that my bet did not go well. It did. Uh, it went in the exact opposite direction. I'm now kind of actively looking for different ways to approach the market. Like I've, I've been really fascinated recently with uh, Mike Green and his, you know, take on passive investing and, and how the market structure requires certain things to happen. I, uh, was lucky enough to have a conversation with him. His his daughter is a pretty uh, excellent beach volleyball player in her own right. I think she's going to play indoor in college. But um, so I met him through that and just you know was able to have some conversations with the guy. And and it's different when you think about like instead of all right this company is going to produce this many widgets and make this many dollars. You know, his is more of like, how does the flows of the market require certain players to act a certain way, um, which is a really fascinating approach. Um, I haven't done the, the homework that he has. You know, he obviously is, um, you know, uh, he's forgotten more about the market than I'll ever know. Uh, and he's brilliant. So if you're going to try to mimic anybody's approach, it might be a tough one to uh, try to mimic somebody who's um, that smart. But um, I, I, I I'm kind of drawn to that way of thinking, and that's been a lot of my reading at the moment. I want to spend a little bit, a little bit of time discussing the idea of what you've learned in the CFA versus what has happened in real life in 2020. And the only, the only, the only reason I ask that is you mentioned, you know, companies that don't make money you should trade at lower prices, and then you have Hertz that files for bankruptcy that shoots to the moon, and then they do a share offering, and it's just. When you when you when you look at what you've researched, doing the CFA, doing level one, doing level two, and having that fresh in your mind, how much of that that you've learned has just been completely thrown out the window in 2020? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I think you kind of nailed it. You know, the, the CFA tells you that finance should work in a very specific way. It's very rules driven. It's very rational and. Um, you know, market participants have all the relevant information and that's how they make decisions and they're not going to ever take any more risk than they need to. And then you just look at what is actually happening. And it doesn't seem that that those two things mix. Um, 
you know, I, I find myself very much drawn to, like you, like you were saying, the oddities, you know, the things that don't seem to make sense, you know, the, the Teslas, the Nikolas uh, now worth $20 billion and they don't actually have a product yet. Uh, Hertz has filed for bankruptcy and the stock's trading up or, you know, Wirecard is missing 1.9 billion euros. Yeah, I saw that this morning. <laughs> it still has a huge market cap. You know, like if, if you're missing that many euros, how, like, I don't understand. Well, you know, I don't know enough about the the company to really dig deep into that one. But um, I think for me anyway, I'm drawn to those oddities, you know, because the only things that I've learned so far is that it's, you know, supposed to be rational and this is how things make sense. So when things don't make sense, when Hertz, you know, becomes much more valuable after filing bankruptcy than before it, uh, that is, you know, where my focus is. Uh, but beyond that, I'm actually learning that uh, I don't think that that's going to be where I want to put my money or where I want to focus on investing. Uh, while it's endlessly fascinating, and I think it's really a great learning opportunity to kind of understand what the difference is between, um, you know, practice and theory, uh, I don't think that that's, you know, necessarily uh, an element where I'm going to have any kind of competitive edge. You know, once you're getting beyond the this is how things should work. And then, all right, well, this is just how human, human beings and, you know, uh, irrational market participants act. Well, there's nothing I can do that's going to be able to, you know, produce alpha in that situation. So, uh, you know, as, as fascinating as I find it, and I, I, I'm not worried about spending time there now as, you know, I'm at the early part of a career and I'm just basically trying to build my knowledge base. Uh, I don't believe that in the future that's going to be where I spend any any legitimate time focusing because uh, I don't think that that's an area that's going to make me a ton of money. I'm glad you brought up this idea of edging, competitive edge. Where do you see your edge now? And if you don't think that you have an edge in the sense that you're still building up your knowledge base, where do you see yourself having an edge? when you quote unquote get to a place where you think you have one, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So, uh, as, as is evidenced by my bank account, I have no edge in the market at the moment. So, um, I think where I could build that edge is, you know, based off of who I am. And, uh, so I, I've always liked the, uh, this book, uh, the adjacent possible. And it's the idea that, you know, like if you're in a room and it's got four doors, well, you can go into four different rooms. But in, as soon as you go into one of those different rooms, all of a sudden different rooms are possible that you couldn't have reached before. So I think of myself as like if I continue to learn and I continue to develop my skill set, um, you know, I can, you know, always call on those competitive lessons I learned as an athlete, as a baseball player, as a, as a beach volleyball player. As, uh, I can you know, focus on, all right, you know how to lose, you know how to uh, train to get better. You, you understand that, you know, one huge loss that isn't going to end your career. So I can take kind of those lessons that I've learned along the way. And as I, you know, get better and better and uh, more knowledgeable in the financial industry, I can use those skills to create new opportunities for myself. So, um, yeah, I don't have any kind of competitive edge yet. My competitive edge would be uh, if I continue to develop my skills over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, that's when I can start to really compound all the things that I've already done in my life. You talk about you talk about competitiveness, and one of the you know this leads this leads perfectly into a little discussion I wanted to have about competitiveness as an edge, and and thinking about that competitive ability as really a 
not necessarily an alpha generator in terms of just the bottom line, but an emotional and mental alpha generator against other market participants. Do you think that competitiveness in investing is an edge where you just have that raw tenacity from that sports background that other people, maybe if they've just been brought up in a in a polished scenario where they go to an Ivy League school, they go to that investment bank, and it's not like they've gotten everything handed to them, but it's they've just followed this very rudimentary path of like, okay, I do A, which then goes to B, which then goes to C. Do you think that you've got an edge there in terms of a competitive drive? Yeah, it's, uh, that reminds me of uh, Josh Wolf has this great saying: uh, "Chips on shoulders, put chips in pockets." You know, the the idea that uh, having a little bit of edge to you um, is is a benefit in his world. And so, for me, when I think of competitiveness, um, it could kind of go either way. You know, I, I like everyone else on the planet watch the. Uh, uh, Bulls documentary about Michael Jordan and what he would do is he would use his competitiveness to create a scenario where he has to perform as well as he can. So in terms of an investment, like think about, you know, you are trying to compete with the market so hard that you're not going to let yourself be go half-assed on on your research. You're not going to let yourself not understand every element of this of this investment strategy. So you're going to push and you're going to get better and you're going to get more informed. And that is in that you know regard, competitiveness, it would be the greatest thing you could have as an investor. But there's also that, you know, double edged sword of, you know, you're trying to compete with somebody else. When you do that, your your ego gets wrapped up into it. You're trying to, you know, prove that you're right or that you can, you know, do things through sheer grit and will. And all of a sudden you're holding on to positions that you shouldn't hold on to and you're and you're pushing harder for an investment that clearly you should have gotten away from a long time ago, but you're just trying to, you know, kind of grit your way through it. So um, I think if you can use that competitiveness with maybe a touch of stoicism and a touch of detachment, um, it could really be a good driver towards being better, a better investor overall, being better in the markets. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think that that idea is any any more prevalent than in shorting because one of the things I see at least personally on on Fintwit is people seem to short for ego and short for vindication instead of alpha and instead of hedging and I could very well be wrong but it's but that's you know but that's just how it feels because shorting is this is this thing where you know if you do get it wrong you can get destroyed and so there's an anchoring bias where if you you know if you're wrong then you don't want to admit that you're wrong because you could take a big loss and you've made this big public decision. It just it just it just reminds me of you know David Einhorn and and seeing and seeing him fall just due to a vindicated short position that he doesn't want to let go. And I think it's purely based off ego. And my question then is, when you go back to your volleyball days, how were you able to draw the line between? the positive benefits of competitiveness while keeping that ego and keeping that um, keeping, keeping those negative effects out. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a million dollar question. It's a fantastic question. I wish I had a really good answer for you. It's, it's nothing but just a a constant process of self-evaluation. You know, I, I've definitely had moments where I was so wrapped up in being a good volleyball player that a tough loss all of a sudden I was frustrated for weeks and, you know, really down on myself. And you start to recognize, you're like, oh, that's because you were thinking of yourself solely in this regard. You know, you were, you know, 
uh, I guess the market participant way would be like, you so wanted the to be right and to be the smartest guy in the room that you forgot the big picture is you're trying to you know make money and and all the the signals told you that you should get out, but you wanted to be the smartest guy in the room. You wanted to show everyone else what you could do, and it, and it really cost you. So, um, in terms of you know uh, volleyball, how do you keep your ego out of it? How do you keep your ego out of competitiveness? Um, I think the great thing about competing is how much it's going to humble you. Um, no matter who you are, you're going to get you know your face rubbed in the dirt every once in a while, just because that's what competition is. If you're not, you know, losing regularly, that means you're not competing against people who are worthwhile. Um, so, as somebody who you know loves that aspect of competition and and, and values it greatly uh you know i've definitely looked at my own investment history and kind of recognized like oh you know at this point you had no rational reason for believing what you believed but you thought you were right and you committed to being right and you publicly said that you were right and this is what you believed so instead of pivoting away you you know held on and it cost you a bunch of money and that's you know the only way to grow is to recognize those lessons and and continue to move you know uh, i remember reading about george soros you know talking to somebody for a week about his position and why he was here and why he was there and and they and then all of a sudden uh they he talked to him the next day he's like yeah i switched it i'm i'm going the other way they go why he's like i don't know i woke up and my back hurt so it was just one of these weird, like, you know, this is what said to him at the time. Like, there were some instincts in him that, you know, changed his mind, and he felt no, you know, ego in that at all. Like, all right, then, you know, this is where I'm going to be, so this is this is what the move should be. Uh, I, so, you know, uh, probably a long-winded answer to that question. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, competitiveness and ego are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and you've seen that with even even another great along along lines of lines lines of Soros that he even worked with Soros is Druckenmiller, and he came out publicly and said, "Look, this market's humbled me, and I don't know what his returns were. I don't know if he was down or up, but whatever it was, he was severely underperforming the market." And he came out and said, "Look, everything that I basically said, I had no idea that this would happen, and I'm flat out wrong. And it's you know, there's a reason why that guy's worth billions and billions of dollars, and there's a reason why Soros is worth billions and billions is because they're able to change." you know, on the dime. And that Soros story, I think that he met up with that guy at the U S open or some, some, some tennis tournament. And he basically told him, Hey, yeah, I changed my mind and I made a ton of money. And that's the important part too. Not only did he change his mind and get out, but he had the, he had the cognitive flexibility to adapt to the other side of the trade after realizing he was wrong. And it's almost, you know, not even just eating crow and admitting that you're wrong, but then approving of that thing that you thought that you were against and still making money. To me, that's just the holy grail of understanding your mind and being fallible. Right, and I, I think the the place I would like to get to is to never feel like I'm eating crow in the first place, is to be flexible enough to, you know, uh, strong convictions loosely held. You know, I, if, I, if I have a position, I want to make sure that I have reasons to be in that position. I want to make sure that it makes sense. But if things change, then I would like to be able to, you know, are, artfully change my uh my position as well and feel no you know oh i'm i'm letting it down letting uh or you know not sticking to my word or anything along those lines so uh you know hopefully i get to a point where i i'm i feel free to change my mind and i don't have to eat any crow whatsoever yeah that would that would that would be a good place and a and a actually a really good place to 
develop that feeling or develop that habit is by posting your ideas, whether it's online on a blog or publicly on Twitter, because it forces you then to look at what you said at that point in time. And if you're wrong, to then go back and say, hey, I was wrong. I mean, obviously you can bury <laughs> you can you can bury that you were wrong deep in your timeline and not even bring it up. But I think it's a healthy habit to say, hey, look, this is what I'm doing this company I'm investing in for XYZ I could be wrong and then if something comes out that you are wrong it's a great habit to just go out there and even even if it's unprompted just to say look yeah I was wrong and I closed my position and I closed it for a loss I I think I think that you can learn way more about yourself doing that than any any course or any book that you could read Right. And, and I think uh, that's kind of the point I'm at right now is the learning about yourself is almost as important about learning about the fundamentals, trying to understand how I myself internalize these different market moves and what I do and, and you know, when I'm right and when I'm wrong. And, you know, uh, I, I think you really nailed it with, uh, you know, you can go out and publicly just realize, yeah, this, you know, I, I was wrong and it's, it's totally fine. I want to switch the conversation now to results versus outcome in sports and investing. And I was listening to a Patrick O'Shaughnessy podcast. I forget which one it was, but the guest on that show referred to David Epstein's book. Oh, gosh, what's the book? I, 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 Gene? No, it's the other one about um, learning environments. Range? Yes, yes, range. range. Got it. Perfect. Thank you so much. That was going to eat me alive. So <laughs> they they – the guest mentioned in that book that there's different kinds of learning environments. There's kind learning environments. And I don't know if he described it as like wicked learning environments and sports is one of those kind learning environments where you put the work in and it's almost like a one plus one equals two, where if you do X amount of work, your results are going to be this, you know, if you work on your craft, if you throw that fastball, you know, a thousand times by that thousandth time, you're going to be better than when you did for the 15th or the 20th. And so that's, that's that kind environment. That's an environment that you've grown up in, even with volleyball, where it's like, if you put in the hours, you're going to get better. And you can see that progression. Whereas now in your career in investing and, and this, and this new passion, there isn't necessarily this kind environment. It's almost like a wicked environment, um, where you can put the work in and the results might take years. So it's not this one plus one equals two. It's this one plus one plus time equals who knows. And I want to just get your thoughts on those two different learning environments and how you've been able to adapt to the to the to the strengths and weaknesses of both. So uh, I'm going to push back on you a little bit with the you know kind environment in sports. So uh, you know there is uh, obviously like if you do something a thousand times, you're probably going to be better at it that thousand time than you are at that first time. However, you know in sports the really difficult challenge is figuring out exactly what you're trying to work on. You know, um, you know, it's, it, take pitching for example. Like you could change your mechanics a little bit, and all of a sudden those are that's a worse change. You know, that's right. making you fundamentally a worse pitcher. And all of a sudden you've thrown a thousand pitches with worse mechanics. That's not you moving in the right direction. Like uh, I always kind of love that saying that you know. 1% better every day, but you have no idea during that day if that was 1% in the right direction. You might have taken 5% in the wrong direction. You could you could very well work for years at a sport and, and be worse off than you were before it because you're not making the right moves and you're not making the, the proper adaption. So uh, I don't necessarily agree wholeheartedly that, uh, you know, 
uh, sports gives you that kind of a, almost a linear path towards getting better. Uh, so I see it as pretty similar to the investing where you, you get better, you understand what you're doing, you, you know, uh, you know, learn more about the basics and you can read balance sheets and financial statements and things like that. And then you can learn a little bit more about the structure and you're building your skill set and you're getting better, but your investment results might continue to be uh, terrible for years. But as long as you're enjoying that process, I think that the uh, thing that is most um, kind of comparable between sports is that if you really love the process of development, that's when you're going to see those returns. And it might not be, like you said, you know, you might wait years uh, in the market before you actually start to see something develop. But if you're really a fan of the process and you enjoy the, you know, developing yourself, that's not going to be a huge hindrance. You know, it, you're, you'll be fine just doing what you're doing because you enjoy uh getting better at what at, at your craft versus you know i needed this uh, investment to work out it didn't in the first six months i did it I, i'm out i'm done I'm, I'm just gonna buy an etf and call it a day so do you think because i'm trying to understand this better now because um, after you mentioned those things i do i do realize that that analogy actually doesn't make as much sense as i first thought so i want to get your feedback here and then do you think the comparison or I guess the yardstick that we should use isn't necessarily the hours put in, whether it's, you know, the the thousandth pitch is incrementally better than the hundredth pitch. Do you think then the comparison and the yardstick is what is, how long does it take you to realize that these tweaks and that these changes are having adverse effects and then your ability to recognize that and to tune it to something that works? Does that make sense where it's your ability to know that what you did did not work and then shrinking that window of time so that you can get back on the path? Right. So that, that self-reflection being part of the loop is very, very important. You know, the ability to take a look back, you know, whether it's once a week, once a month, once a year, whatever the case is, being able to say, all right, is the thing that I'm doing, is, is the training and the process, is that developing me towards where I want to go? So you've got your, your picture, all right, I want to be this type of investor. In order to be this type of investor, I need to be able to do these, this, this, and this, X, Y, and Z. Well, is my process helping me develop towards being better at X, being better at Y, being better at Z? And, you know, you could get as granular as you want. And, you know, in sports, that would be like at the end of a practice, literally just going back and thinking, okay, what was I trying to work on during this practice? Was I able to do it successfully? Okay, that means it was a successful practice. I moved closer towards my goal of being better at you know, throwing a fastball, having a good slider, you know, jump serving, whatever the case may be. Investing, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of a similar process of, you know, how granular can you be? You read all day about, you know, a specific company. Well, what's the, what's your overall goal? What's your, you know, big mountain that you're trying to climb and how can you be sure that you've made some small progress up that hill? Um, you know, that kind of feedback loop is what's going to eventually lead towards those compound, compounding uh, successes. Because I'm sure you've seen something similar in the markets, but I've seen plenty of athletes who work as hard as anyone on the planet and they work the wrong way and they don't really understand how to get better at what they're doing. So they just 
are workhorses and they and they're workaholics and then they're the same player they were two years ago because the, all those hours they put in aren't moving them in a better direction. Um, you know, that's definitely one lesson I want to take from the sports world is making sure that I have that uh, periodic check-in with myself like, hey, are you a better investor now than you were um, last year? And I'm thankful to report that uh, I couldn't have been any worse in the past couple of years. So, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely a better investor now than I used to be. So then, so then, when you when you do gauge that performance, do you physically write it down, and do you do 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 you have certain buckets of 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 um, skill sets that you're actually tracking, or is it more of like heuristics and just kind of go by feel? Because I think that would be harder with with something, um, you know, as cerebral as investing if you don't write it down to not know if you're becoming better because you can't necessarily just look at the P and L, especially if it's you know long term focused. You can't look at the month to month or quarter to date. P&L to get that information. Right. Yeah. If you want to be a great investor over a you know a long term time horizon, it really doesn't matter what the stock did today. Like that, you can't use that as a barometer. Um, I'm a big fan of writing things down. Uh, like I like you know long term goals, short term goals. So you know uh, I did that in sports and I did that with some success. Like that was what I was able to do. Like I you know had my uh, these are my biggest weaknesses. This is how I work on these every day. These are, you know, my biggest strengths. These are how I'm going to optimize these in competition. And, you know, I, I want to try to do the same things in investing. So right now I'm trying to, you know, build my skill set, uh, becoming a little bit more tech savvy, you know, learning, uh, taking some Python courses and learning a little bit more about um, the quantitative aspects. So that way, you know, hopefully down the road, I can, you know, be a little bit more um, agile with, with data and be able to use that in different ways. Uh, as an investor, because, you know, that's my whole goal is I want to be a good investor. Well, knowing zero about how computers work is probably not going to lead me to being a great investor. So I need to build that small skill bucket now, and I'll never be uh, a great coder or programmer. I, I recognize those limitations, but it's not necessary for me to be great at that in order for me to add that to my skill set to be great in the future. So um, aside from that, I do write down, you know, thoughts, why I entered certain positions, you know, how I reacted to it. And, and through doing that, I've been able to notice, all right, you know, this was a good, a good idea. It made sense at the time. Market shifted. I held on because I was arrogant and, and a little bit too egotistical and, and wanted to be right. And then at this point, I made a huge bet to try to recover my losses. And that was all just uh, me being panicked and, and kind of overwhelmed, which, you know, uh, very similar to kind of the beginning of the sports career, getting getting panicked and overwhelmed in tough situations where, you know, after, you know, 10 years of competing, you don't really have that anymore. You know, you could put me in the toughest beach volleyball scenario and I would react uh, very, very comfortably because I've I've done it all before. So, you know, I'm just trying to make sure that I have those same experiences in the investing world. So that way, you know, 10 years from now, when we have the next uh, crisis that, that's going to hit, because it will, you know, we all know that something's going to happen in 2030 or 2035 that's going to shock the investment world. I'll have all of these experiences and all of this, um, you know, uh, skill sets to, to kind of call on uh, to kind of guide me through it. I love it. I love it. And you mentioned you're teaching yourself Python. So I have two questions because I'm also a Python fan and I spent a lot of time 
learning the basics about two years ago. I actually took a course in college on quantitative Python with a little bit more economic bent. Um, so how are you How are you teaching yourself Python? What resources are you using? Because I know that we've got investors that might be interested in something like that that listen to the show. And then the second question is, what is that goal then with, with learning Python, how it relates to software companies? Are you just trying to understand maybe the framework that these software companies use like on a bare bones backbone level? Or is it trying to understand something a little bit deeper? So in terms of why I'm doing it, uh, again, it's a big, uh, big believer in the adjacent possible. I figure that if I understand a little bit of code and can read a little bit of code and maybe even implement some codes to do some very simple things with, with data sets, that will then open up different avenues for me, different uh, abilities that I could then access. You know, so uh, I want to just try to create um, as as intricate of a web as possible. Um, so I have no real concrete plans about exactly what I want to get out of Python. Um, but I know that uh, knowing it would be smarter than, uh, would be better than not. Um, in terms of how I'm teaching it myself, uh, I'm a big fan of the, you know, self-study. Uh, so, uh, you know, automate the, the boring stuff. Uh, it's an online book that has a whole bunch of different tutorials. Um, there's a, a lot of great online uh, YouTube accounts. Uh, Corey, I'm blanking on his last name, starts with an S, um, has a ton of different Python material where you can just, you know, start understanding the absolute basics. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Just uh, I cannot do anything more complex than, you know, filling out simple lists or dictionaries or, you know, uh, very basic number programs. Um, but, you know, as, as, as I build and you get curious and you kind of try different things out on your own, you start to come up with, oh, that would be a neat thing to be able to do, but I don't know how to do that yet. Let me look that up. Um, and, you know, if you kind of slowly chip away at that over the course of a week, a month, a year, um, by the end of that year, you're going to have a lot of things that you know how to do that you never knew before. And what that actually is going to allow me to do, uh, Lord knows. I, I, have, no, I have no clue. Um, again, I've always been better at adapting than planning. So uh, we'll, see, we'll see what the road brings when I get there. I think Corey, I think his last name is Schneider. If you're talking about the, he's got, he's got a YouTube channel. That um, sounds very familiar. Yeah, we'll go with Schneider. Okay, yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll post that in the show links, but I think it's Schneider because um, I remember watching some of his videos as well. And uh, you know, another another thing, if you're if you're interested in Python, and you may have already heard of this website, but Quantopian is a really great resource to learn about Python and how it relates to investing and trading. And you can do, they basically have their own IDE, their own platform, their own Jupyter Notebooks inside there that you can code and build your own trading and investing algorithms. And what's cool about that is you can kind of backtest these ideas that you have in your head where, okay, let's see, I guess we can talk about the acquirers multiples, the perfect one where you run a, you run a, you know, a filter through a pipeline of stocks, EV to EBIT, less than five and then you just run a back test for the last 30 years to see what results that pulled up. So if that's something you're interested in, I would definitely check out Quantopian at in your in your normal course of studies. Um, you know, just just even for anybody out there. I mean, I'm not sponsored or anything, but it's how I learned uh, the Python that I know today, which is not much. That's uh, very much appreciated. Yeah, I wrote that down. I'll check that out. Awesome. All right, so let's let's get into our closing section here. I mean, you've given us over an hour of your time. I know. You know, you've probably got some volleyball to play this morning because it's one o'clock here, which means it's 
what, uh, 10 a.m. over there? 10 a.m. Yep, Sun's 10 just <laughs> coming up, ready to, ready to play. It's the golden hour for beach volleyball. That's right. So I got to get you out of here. So where, where, where can people go to find out more about you, Ryan? Uh, so uh, I'm on Twitter all the time trying to make as many jokes as possible. It's uh, at RyanDarty47. Um, and that would pretty much be it. I don't really use Facebook or anything like that anymore. Yeah, congrats um, on And then if you want to read more followers. about Yeah, yeah. I mean, just got to 5,000. Who knew the uh, beach volleyball slash bad market takes would be such a popular niche? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, no. So definitely, definitely go follow Ryan. And then the last question that I have for everybody that I ask on this show is if you could have dinner with one person from the past or present, who would it be and why? Uh, that's a real. It's a really interesting question. I don't have a fantastic answer. I'm probably going to go with a Richard Feynman, just because he seems like such an interesting guy, like this this brilliant person who was so infatuated with learning, but in a in a real world sense, in a in the you know I don't want to learn things just to memorize them, but I want to learn them to understand them and explain them and and interact with them. It just he seemed like such a uh, such a unique character. I believe that uh, having dinner with him would be pretty enlightening. Awesome. Yeah, we haven't had that name on the show yet, which is pretty cool. I mean, 30 episodes in, no one said that. Um, awesome. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I look forward to just seeing your future development and, you know, what. hopefully you let me know whatever pick you've got so uh, I can do the Contra and maybe maybe, maybe make some money over here. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to help you out. Thanks for having me, Brandon. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Take care.